Happy Halloween, everybody. In today's special Halloween episode, we are talking about vampires, but not the kind you normally think of. Not fanged bloodsuckers from Transylvania, and not moody hunks that sparkle in sunlight, but something much more intimate female sexual predators. You see, in the late 19th and early 20th century, women who seduced men and used them for their own ends were known as vampires, and no one struck more fear into the hearts of men than silent film darling Theta Bera, cinema's first sex symbol. We're going to explore this other meaning of the word vampire and then have an intimate look at that nearly forgotten but still tantalizing early silver screen sex superstar, Theta Bera. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Vampires have always been sexy. From the blood-sucking predator of Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula, which was basically 19th century softcore, to the dark romantics of Anne Rice's novel starting with the 1976 interview with the vampire, to the sparkly emo heartthrobs of the 2008 movie Twilight, vampires have always been sexy. Well, perhaps not Nosferatu, the hunched and toothy creature of the 1922 expressionist film starring Max Schreck, and also the original folkloric vampire from Eastern Europe was frankly pretty disgusting. Nothing sexy there, just a swollen raisin you kind of just want to squash with a potato masher. But, I mean, come on, work with me here. Most vampires in the modern Western imagination are synonymous with a certain kind of gothic fantasy, a trembling fear of seduction with a corresponding questionable craving that maybe, just maybe, you want to be seduced. Most Western vampires have been dark symbols of dominance, submission, and desire. But did you know that there was a brief period when the word vampire had an entirely other meaning, not at all supernatural, but still embodying that dangerous and complicated allure? In the late 19th and early 20th century, the word took on the popular meaning of a tantalizing sexual predator, specifically a woman who preys upon men and leaves them a husk of his former self. There were no fangs there, no hunger for blood, no aversion to crosses, just pure force of personality. Men were bled dry emotionally, and perhaps financially, if not literally, and this kind of vampire was a creature much closer to home person just like you and I, yet still very much a transgressive creature of the night and still very much an object of horror, well, at least to men. My guess is that most of you out there probably rarely, if ever, heard the word used this way, and if you have, you probably just felt it was just a straight-up reference to the, you know, the supernatural creature that we see all the time, you know, used metaphorically. Merriam-Webster does still list one meaning of vampire as, quote, a woman who exploits and ruins her love, unquote. So this meaning is, if not dead, at least halfway to the grave. But at one time, it stalked the night with vigor. Today, there is something off about its gendered specificity, referring primarily to women who prey upon men. It feels highly chauvinistic, and indeed it was. And it is clearly 
quite clearly a projection of the male psyche, an emasculating symbol of female domination. And it has the same feeling as the vagina dentata, you know, that old folk tale that claimed a woman's naughty bits were rowed with teeth, so watch out, boys, that thing. Yet there is always something fascinating about this particular kind of danger. This is not the kind of undead vermin that you just want to smash with a potato masher. This is the kind of seducer where you almost want to be seduced. This is the kind where you may very well be complicit in your own seduction. It's the kind of troubling fear where you know this cannot end well for you, but you just can't turn away. We know this feeling quite well from our cinematic depictions of vampires today, but the meaning that I want to talk about, which was around in the earliest days of cinema, when movies were silent and shadows played upon the light, is this feeling pure and unalloyed. This is the female sexual predator. This meaning was popularized by a poem by Rudyard Kipling, who was always a bit of a man's man, so perhaps it's not really that surprising that this kind of fear would emerge out of his psyche. He published his poem entitled The Vampire in 1897, about a man lamenting his seduction, his use and abuse by a femdom woman. The poem was inspired in turn by an earlier painting done in the same year by Kipling's cousin Philip Byrne Jones. Also entitled The Vampire, this painting depicts a woman hovering in bed over a wasted man, but with no hint of anything supernaturally monstrous, just a much more real kind of monstrosity, the kind that might invade any man's bed. The painting is furthermore done in a hyper-realistic, black-and-white sepia-style mimicking photographs of the era, which further heightened its sense of realism, and which perhaps is part of what made its fear strike home for viewers and for Kipling. Following Kipling's transformation of that image into verse, the non-supernatural, dangerously human meaning of the word vampire invaded popular consciousness, becoming widely popular, and soon would make its appearance on the silver screen. Before we leave Kipling, though, I do want to point out that the times were not exclusively chauvinistic. This was also the era of the suffragette. In fact, in 1899, Mary C. Lowe published a counterpoint to Kipling's gendered nightmare, entitled The Vampire from a Woman's Point of View, taking the other perspective and finding, quite plausibly, a reverse predation at work in Kipling's maybe-not-so-innocent male victim. If you'd like to see a comparison of the two poems, along with a whole lot else that we're going to be talking about today, you are welcome to check it out in the episode post at www.deadideas.net. We'll have all of that there for you. For now, suffice to say that deeper questions were being asked of this meaning of vampire, even as it flitted from the shadows of a painting into poetry and finally onto the silver screen. We come now to the main thrust of our episode today, cinema's first sex symbol. Onto the screen of early cinema silently stepped a woman with luscious dark hair, pert lips, and a stare to steal your breath away. When I contemplate the actress that came to most embody the meaning of vampire that I've been describing, I feel a little bit of a tremble, and I fully admit that as a man I am utterly complicit in the projection of a male fantasy, and yet I cannot look away. The vamp, that's what they called her. Her name was Theta Bera. 
which was an anagram for Arab death. Born of an Arab sheik and a French woman in the Sahara, or so they said. Born under the Sphinx, or so they said. She gave body to something shadowy and mysterious. And in interviews, she said that she dabbled in the occult and lived her life fast and loose, not expecting to live past the age of 30. Everything about Theta Bera screamed, Boys, watch out. When Theta Bera crept upon the screen, she was a seductress, a femme fatale, a vampire. Silent as a crypt, for she never appeared in any sound film, but only in silent films. She dominated with her eyes, her movements, her body. She became known as cinema's first sex symbol, and that symbol represented everything terrifying in woman. She is at her most tantalizing in a series of still photographs, and these promo stills are today the main way that we know Theta Bera, or at least that I know her, for of the 40-odd silent films that she made, almost all of them are lost. A vault fire at Fox Studios, yes, that Fox, 20th Century Fox, burned up all but a precious few of her movies. Now, since many of you listeners out there may not have heard of Theta Bara, let me paint a picture for you. You can see for yourself if you Google Theta Bara, or if you go to our episode post, as I mentioned, and if you do, you will quickly see how she was able to ensnare the hearts of so many, including mine, but let me try to communicate it for you here. One still photograph in particular captures me, and it comes from her role as Cleopatra. Being from the era of black and white film, she emerges from the shadows, her pale white skin strangely aglow, and her costume, which she designed herself, finds her dark, imperious, and nearly nude, with nothing more than a pair of writhing serpents to cup her breasts. Her eyelids are painted black, her brow is menacing, and her hands are raised to her temples like an enchantress and spelling you with mesmerism. Other photographs reveal her cavorting with skulls or staring into the eyes of a raven. This was the Theta Bera of male fantasy, the Theta Bera who exploited a male willingness to be seduced in her roles on the screen and in her public persona. But this was not who Theta Bera really was. When she said she was born in the Sahara, she was not. She was born in Cincinnati. When she said she lived so fast and loose she did not expect to live past 30, she was already past 30 at the time. <laughs> Theta Bera was not Theta Bera, but Theodosa Burr Goodman, a humdrum, bookish Jewish girl named after the daughter of Vice President Aaron Burr. Now learning that pops a hole in the persona. It turns flaccid the fantasy of Theta Bera, and the accompanying feeling of disappointment lays bare the guilt of complicity in which one has participated in being seduced. In one of cinema's first great PR stunts, Theodosa had become Theta Bera, building an entire persona not just for the screen, but for her very public image as it was projected to moviegoers, and all of those eager to know about the woman behind the films. Just as you might think today of, say, Marilyn Manson claiming to have intentionally damaged his eye to look like David Bowie, or Ozzy Osbourne reputed to have bit off the head of a bat on stage. Whether or not such myths were propagated by the artists themselves or just grew up around them, those kinds of things enhanced the horror by blurring the lines between fiction and reality, and just so 
in the case of Theta Bera. In fact, she was the original of this type. Everything about her silver screen image was suggested to be quite possibly true of the woman behind the image as well, which only made her all the more terrifying. And fans licked up these lies and begged for more, just like the poor dupes targeted in so many of her movies. Her role as Vamp floated off the screen to invade the minds of the movie-going public. But as for Theta Barra herself, or perhaps we should say Theodosia here, to mark a dividing line between fiction and reality, Theodosia herself, well, she harbored pretty mixed feelings about Theta Barra. Success was sweet, it couldn't be argued, but at what price was that kind of a question that plagued her? After early success as an eviscerator of men, she was typecast forevermore, and Theodosia resented this bitterly. In actuality, she railed against her role as a vamp. And it's this conflict, this inner conflict between Theta and Theodosia, which mirrors the conflict between victim and complicit participant that I really want to focus on today. This conflict is exposed in a two-part series of articles published by Theodora Burra herself. In 1919, just after the end of the Great War, she confesses that she was born not under the Sphinx, but in the humble Midwest, and she gives us a peek behind the curtain at what it was like to work in the silent film industry at the time, which was not without horrors of its own, and she unveils the compromises that she was forced to make, her ideals and her regrets, including her own complicity in the male fantasy that she indulged and perhaps perpetuated. So let's turn now to Theta's own words. We don't have time to read the whole two articles, so we will be using excerpts here, and in between I will intersperse facts and observations as they become relevant, but let's go now to Theta Bera's own words about her life and career. The title of part one is How I Became a Film Vampire, The Self-Revelations of a Moving Picture Star by Theta Bara, and it begins with boxed texts ostensibly from an unnamed editor introducing her. Theta Bara is the most celebrated exponent of emotional eroticism in the films. Her acting in stories that reveal the power of the wicked vampire, women over men, has been conceded to be the most realistic performances of their kind. There are those who admire the sensuousness of her work, others her ability as an actress, others the strange fascination of her eyes. She has been a mysterious personality in private life. This is the first true story of that life, written at the turning point of her career when she has decided to vamp no more. Her reason for this, her impulses and emotional work, her real origin, are here told for the first time. Now, I should tell the context of these articles. They come from 1919, years after she first became famous as The Vamp. In fact, by this time, she was attempting to transcend her typecast image, hence her motivation to break character, so to speak, by revealing her true self here. And this is the first time that the public is being allowed to see not Theta, but Theodosia. And Theodosia writes, Always I have been a charlatan, a register of human emotions. 
It may be because all intense feeling is pretense, since no one can explain the contrariness of life. Women have all but died for the love of a man, and all but died from hatred of him. There are degrees of charlatanism, and I have reached the third degree, the investigation of the facts. Here are a few of the important ones. Number one. Through inherited instincts, a pretty woman soon discovers her good points, the points that intensify her success. In this way, she begins a study of an exact science called sex appeal. No one warns her that it is a false appeal. On the contrary, she is encouraged to develop the habitual intrigues of her good points. Number two. The good little girl is just as bad as the bad little girl is good. So why moralize? Number three. We were born to deceive. It is the way of a woman and a man. With these opening words, Theodosia makes clear that she makes no claim to be the innocent victim of, say, the film industry or its PR stunts. She owns her role as a charlatan and a deceiver. I myself chose the African desert as my professional birthplace, she says. For years, my emotional display has been accredited to my Arab blood, such is the fame of charlatanism that dark hair and eyes have been interpreted as positive proof that I was nursed on camel's milk in a chief's tent with my baby face turned to the east. Now why deny an intrigue of such delicate satire? Somewhere in the forgotten spaces through which my soul passed, I may have been kin to a Bedouin. Who knows? Who cares but I myself? It happens, however, that among the scraps of memories that I find scattered on loose, closely written pages, hidden away from the eager eye of irresponsible scribblers, I have preserved some personal recollections of my childhood. And then Theodosia goes on to recount her actual birth in the Midwest, in Cincinnati, and her humdrum childhood. Finally, she says that at the age of 18, she resolved to become an actress. And so she headed to New York on a few dimes spared to her by her father, and she attempted an artistic lifestyle in the theater. But she soon found temptation and victimization was rampant in the industry. I had my experiences going around to dramatic agents looking for an engagement in a profession I knew nothing about. At last, I was engaged for a small part in a road company at a salary of $25 a week. But I should like to blot this experience out, for it is full of disappointment and discomfort. I wanted to be an actress, to be sure, but I didn't want to be an actress at the expense of unpleasant associations. However, I stuck to this engagement until the manager found a girl who was willing to play the part for $18 a week. And I absolutely declined to have my salary cut. In this respect, I was a real actress. I came back to New York, and in a little while, my mother and sister joined me by a real actress. I get what she means here is the starving artist kind of actress, because that's the next phase of her career here, with her mother and sister in a small apartment and the stresses of life pressing down upon her. That phrase, starving artist, was most apropos for her. Then, one day... As I was going along the street, a man came up and spoke to me. He was very polite, very apologetic. He told me that he was an agent for moving pictures. He said to me that he thought I would photograph well for the movies. He thought that I had good eyes. He gave me his card and address 
and he told me that he could get me a salary of $175 a week. That's like five times what she was getting before, right? But she rebuffs even this. I drew myself up haughtily and told him that I wouldn't go into the movies for a million dollars. I despised them. Nothing would ever induce me to become a moving picture actress. Now, this might be a little hard for us to relate today, but you see, at the time, films in America were not the stellar things that we know of today. All of the great movies, the creative works of art, the movies that were worth a damn, were all being made in Europe at the time. And so she didn't want to be part of that kind of second-rate, two-bit, B-movie kind of scene. But you see, the world was on the eve of war, and soon there would be a turn of fate that would be auspicious for Theodosia. It was not long after this that I met Mr. Frank Powell, who was then director of the Fox Films Amusement Company. He said I looked interesting and asked me to watch the picture that he was making. I did so and then went home. For a long time I heard nothing more about this. For a year, in fact. And if it hadn't been for our insurance, I should not have survived that year as well as I did. A fire, which happened ten doors away from our apartment, reached us by the most miraculous incident. The flames leapt along a cornice from the store and through the windows of our apartment and burned everything in it. My mother and sister and I barely escaped with our lives. And then I had my first experience in the problem of collecting insurance. The man I had to see was a horrid little person, but I used all the art of feminine persuasion upon him. I had to. My mother was taken ill with pneumonia from the exposure, and we needed the money. I finally succeeded in getting $900 from him, and on that $900 we lived one winter. I remember bringing the check home to my mother and crying copiously because it wasn't more, and saying to her at the time, if I could only have cried like this to the insurance man, I should have gotten more money. Now, aren't not all women charlatans when it comes to a crisis in which they must act quickly? And that is a bit of a foreshadowing, I think, of the kinds of conditions in which she's going to find herself in her career and the kinds of decisions that she is going to make along the way. And yet, at this time, still, she balked at her fate in the films. One day, I received a telephone message from Mr. Powell, asking me to call at the office. He offered me the leading role in A Fool There Was at $150 a week. I was sufficiently chastened almost to accept, until he told me that I should have to wear a one-piece bathing suit in one of the scenes. This seemed to me so horrible that I demurred. I told my mother, and she thought I was wrong. And I remember putting on a sort of one-piece bathing suit which belonged to my brother and standing before the mirror in my bedroom in it. Now this I find interesting in historical context. Listeners, if you recall from our Topless Renaissance episode, perceptions of acceptable display of flesh have changed quite drastically over time, and in this era that we're talking about, even male toplessness was relatively scandalous. Now, Theodosia here puts on her brother's one-piece bathing suit <laughs> in a scene I can only imagine. And I, I, it was probably a kind of singlet, I suppose, which must have fit her poorly, but would have been revealing enough that she felt utterly exposed. And she was supposed to wear this on camera for everyone in the world to see? Now, 
this depiction of her, this picture of innocence, contrasts starkly with the vamp that we know that she is about to become. And Theodosia acknowledges this eventuality in her article here with a hint of mysticism. Slight incidents often lead to serious consequences. My embarrassment then, as I looked at myself in the mirror, seemed to finally end my future in moving pictures. The woman in me rebelled. As I look back at this slender crossroad of my destiny, I cannot help thinking of the inevitable command that fate has over us. Because, you see, I had to accept the engagement in A Fool There Was. I had to wear the one-piece bathing suit in Florida where the picture was made, but through error, it was cut out of the film. <laughs> so, by luck, she was spared the embarrassment of this indecent exposure. But what she was not spared is actually all the more interesting, at least to me. In fact, little did she realize that this movie pushed her much farther. You see, A Fool There Was, as soon as it hit the theaters, was a hit. And it set in stone the public image of her as a man-wrecker completely contrary to everything that she had thought herself to be up to then. But now, in the public's mind, there she was, the beginning of her career as the vamp. And this was no accident. The movie was a direct reference back to Kipling's poem, even taking the poem's opening line, A Fool There Was, as its title. And so, Theodosia, under the new persona of Theta Barra concocted for her by her press agent, instantly became... The Vampire. But she was not ready for it. As she recalls, I became famous for the vampire woman that I am not, and I shall never forget the terrible experience of my first scene. I had to wear makeup in the public street, and I felt like a lost soul. A scene was taken on the steamship pier, and there must have been 2,000 people standing around looking at me. The whole world seemed to have turned into human eyes. I drove up in a taxi, had to get out and walk aboard the steamship. The scene represented the moment when the man whom this woman had ruined came up to her a tramp. I trembled. I shook. I all but died right there on the dock. But I didn't. And why I didn't, and how I became a moving picture star, is perhaps the best part of my life story. So ends the first part of Theta Barra's two-part autobiography. And this presents an opportunity for a cinematic intermission of sorts in which I should probably present the historical gamut of her film presence. Theta Barra's career spanned the years of the Great War, World War I, and that was not entirely an accident. You see, she had actually gotten her first break as a bit part a bit before this in a movie called The Stain, which came out in 1914, the same year that the war broke out in Europe, although America would not enter the war for another three years. Her first big hit, A Fool There Was, as we just mentioned, came out the next year, in 1915, and I can't help but wonder if fears whipped up by the war did not prime audiences to resonate with the anxiety of a seductress threatening imminent destruction. 
After that, she followed with a string of vamp films. More than 40 in all, her films featured titles like Siren of Hell, The Devil's Daughter, Sin, Carmen, The Galley Slave, The Serpent, Gold and the Woman, The Eternal Sappho, The Vixen, The Tiger Woman, Camille, The She-Devil, and Salome. And amidst all these, Theodosia actually railed against the studio and the audiences that only demanded more, more, more of this delicious seductress. She wanted to be more than that, but that is all that they wanted. And in the few instances where the studio allowed her to play a non-seductress role, they failed to adequately promote the film, perhaps intentionally, in order to force her back into the role that they wanted, and so she went on. Now, there had been other actresses before her labeled a vamp, but Theda Bara became the vamp. Now, the Great War ended in 1918, and by 1919, Theda Bara was ready to be done with her own slaughterous career, at least the one she had known thus far. And that is why she came out with these articles that we are looking at, in order to humanize the monster, in order to take off the mask. All right, intermission over. Let's now return to Theodosia for part two of her autobiography. This one is entitled The Curse on the Moving Picture Actress, describing the conflict in her artistic experience in the moving picture art. Here we are treated to a behind-the-veil look at her life and occasional horrors in the early film industry. In the dim lights of luxurious private studios, where midnight is the hour of soulful confession, there is a curse put upon the movie actress. To men who sigh to music and to the long-limbed women who people these ghost lands of cerebral culture, she is another cursed product of the commercialism that they despise. Upon her baby curls or her temperamental shoulders, they have thrown the ashes of their pity, the cinders of their own artistic fires. Therefore, it is with the utmost humility of mind that I approach these confessions of my own experience in the contemptuous trade of screen emotion. And then she begins by revealing what is not captured on the silver screen, the sometimes punishing conditions under which filming must occur in order to achieve realism. The camera is a brutal monster, which drives her, the actress she means, to extremes, she may pass hours at a time in a damp cave, or she may be fighting for her chastity in a blizzard in Alaska, or she may have to roll in the dirty gutter of a side street. The scenes through which she passes are either masterpieces of outdoor landscape, or they are staged amid the sordid filth of humanity. Now this is a reminder that while the movie viewer may enjoy the idea of a sordid scene without actually needing to endure it, the actors and actresses enjoy no such privilege and she will return to this theme in just a moment. But first she casts light on the still more challenging conditions under which an actress, specifically, must work. I found in my first encounter with open-air emotion that very little is expected of the actress so far as her own initiative is concerned. Later on, I changed this tradition. But at first, it was brought home to me very vividly by that custom of the motion picture trade, the director was the mastermind of all acting in a movie. Now, if an actress, through some careless neglect of this tradition, 
used her own imagination in the conception of character, she was reminded that in the movies there was a scenario which did all that for her. She could be an actress if she wished, but it was better to be a good close-up, quote-unquote. A rolling eye and an undraped figure were all that the public expected of a vampire in the movies. <laughs> and with that, Theodosia returns to the theme of the lengths to which she was pushed to achieve cinematic realism. If the scenario called for horror, considered a valuable bit of film, by the way, the emotion must be a repelling photograph. Imagine she must mean for the purpose of promotion. Still photographs, like the ones I was describing earlier. The actress must be really horrified, startled out of her wits, to get such a photograph. And so the skillful director arranges that, without warning, a pistol is fired in her ear at the click of the camera, registering horror. The result of the sudden fright upon the face of a human being is tolerably certain. It is a real photograph of horror, and it is a sudden shock to the nervous system that leaves one trembling and weak. I was once placed in front of a man who was firing a loaded rifle at a mirror over my head. I protested to the management that my life was in danger, but I was told that this emergency has been provided for. The man with the rifle was a sharpshooter, so why worry? But, I said, supposing he sneezed. Sharpshooters were never known to sneeze in action, I was told. <laughs> so, this was the industry in which Theta Barra emerged. It was a male-dominated industry in which actors and actresses were pressed and manipulated to create the realistic imagery that viewers demanded. As an idealistic, innocent, starving artist, Theodosia accepted the invitation of this industry. She invited it to her home like that other kind of vampire, thus making her complicit in her own seduction, as she goes on to confess. <laughs> I was trademarked as a vampire. My first picture was a success that surprised everyone. I myself was not quite convinced when it was over that I could ever do it again. And yet, there was a secret triumph in it. I received so many letters of congratulation from exhibitors, so many unsolicited telegrams of encouragement, that I began to feel the lure of a fame that I had previously despised. I looked the future square in the face, being a feminist, convinced that a woman's private life should be economically sound before she indulged her own romantic impulses, I saw a public that would support me. The public made me with the very first picture that I appeared in. Note that here, Theodosia styles herself a feminist, and this is, in fact, still a year before women won the right to vote in the United States. This was a time when women were seizing strength for themselves, and Theodosia appropriates to herself that strength, but in her own way. She next describes a particular experience of discovering that strength within herself in a way not altogether comfortable. I recall an incident when I was required to throw a man, six feet tall, over a cliff thirty or forty feet below. I had to struggle with him and finally throw him over by main force. I was frightened. I told my director he might be hurt and I should feel responsible. But when the scene came, I forgot everything but the crisis of my rage, and I struggled with him. He 
He said to me afterward that I was as strong as a man, and that my arms were like steel about him, and yet I had asked him to be careful not to hurt me. I have the strength of a charlatan, the force that lies in the imagination of women who do not use it. It is the strength that comes with emotional abandon, without actual force. In this statement I perceive a fact that is peculiarly personal, the fact that in none of my vampire roles have I ever consciously shared their sensuous impressions. If their success has been because of their typical sincerity, it has been due to an emotional strength in me, but not of me, an impersonal conception of what the vampire woman is. In fact, it may be that in every woman there is Carmen and Cleopatra, Juliet and Salome. And there you have it, folks power laid bare. Theodosia suggests every woman has within them that power, but she resists portraying this power as either righteous or vicious. It's just bare, naked power, I think, that she's describing. And that, I would say, is what lies at the root of Theta Bara, the vamp. It would be all too easy to idealize her as an early icon of feminist rebellion, or to villainize her for perhaps reinforcing the patriarchy by embodying a male fantasy. But Theodosia does neither with respect to herself in these articles. Instead, she denudes herself for us in a way far more revealing than her brother's one-piece swimsuit. She exposes herself for what she is in all her human complications. These are true things about me that I have never told, because the moving picture art is chiefly an art of lies. There is something in the click of the camera as it registers the emotions, foot by foot, that demoralizes artistic expression. One becomes a species of human mechanism, speeding up all the deep sources of feeling and chopping them in bits to fit the inexorable ribbon of real. It is an art of lies, because it is limited to primitive impulses, to barren emotions, because it is a record of the feverish pulse of life instead of the normal pulse. Everything must be told quickly and briefly, without a fair chance to develop artistic wants. These are confessions of intimate disappointment in the work that I have never overcome. And it's no one's fault. It is because the movie actress is a bit of machine-made, not handmade, art. It frustrated Theodosia, this industry, and that came out in her work. As she recounts, in the fight scene with one of the factory girls, they selected a robust, thick-ankled, solid sort of woman from the tenement districts, you know, a real type, picked to make a real fight with me. I took a violent personal dislike to her as I watched her for days before the scene was played. She was told to kill me if necessary, and I was warned to actually defend myself. Realism in the movies is so essential that one loses one's temper over it sometimes, and I did so on this occasion. It was a real fight. We pulled hair, we scratched, we wrestled, we tumbled over and under one another in the best artistic movie form. And when it was over, I was covered with bruises, but the other girl had fainted, not I. And as if all of these experiences that she's recounted up to this point were not enough, finally Theodosia comes to one of her most captivating of roles, in my mind at least, her appearance as the Queen of Egypt 
Cleopatra. My most interesting character, to my mind, has been Cleopatra. She was a woman of immortal pride. She too must be the victim of moving picture demoralization, and she too must be labeled vampire on that account. I do not think that she was, in spite of the opinion of movie fans. The vampire, after all, may be the return to Earth of Venus in one of her myriad disguises. Venus, of course, being the Greek goddess of love. So I think what she's saying here is that Cleopatra has two sides, or could be read in two different ways, either as the villainous vamp, or, or as the rightful embrace of all that is powerful in women and their bodies. But if this sounds idealistic, she was soon to get an experience that brought her down to earth. When I have read about myself as a celebrated vampire, the term has become as pungently commercial to my mind as omega oil. Today it has become a greater stench in my cinematograph nostrils. It was in Cleopatra that, under temperamental impulse, I thrashed a man so that he ran away. He was an Italian, playing the part of Mark Antony's messenger. And in the scene of Cleopatra's rage, I had to beat him. And he ran away before I could kill him. And the director called him back. And he rushed up trembling and said to the director, Just look at my back! There were cuts upon him, and he was bleeding. I looked at myself in amazement. Probably the rings or jewels I was wearing had scratched his skin. But I was not conscious of my own strength. Of course, it was not strength at all. It was the emotional expression of Cleopatra's rage. Rage. That's where Theodosia is in her career at this point rage at the industry, and also, I think, at herself for her complicity in creating Theta Bara. And so, fed up, she makes a desperate attempt to break out of the straitjacket in which she has found herself, to break out of the typecast mold of the vamp. She gives us this first authentic glimpse at her true self in these articles, true so far as we may suppose, I mean, who knows how much calculation has gone into what she has actually put in or left out of this tale that we are getting, this autobiography. After all, she has made her name as the deceiver, the liar, and it's a charge that she does not deny. She calls herself a charlatan. And yet she reminds us, with her parting words from this article, that the very art which we viewers all demand is itself one big lie. In spite of the humbug in this art of lies called moving pictures, I have discovered that it is a stepping stone to my destiny, a destiny that has not been that of a vampire, but that of an actress who will someday emerge from silent drama. And thus ends her autobiographical expose. But it's not quite the end of Theta Bara. The final chapter of her career is what she had hoped to be the capstone, where she finally breaks free of being the vamp. But unfortunately, it proved to be a bit of a tragic ending for her. Frustrated as she was with her typecasting, she left Fox Studios after her 1919 film The Lure of Ambition, and then returned to the theater. In 1920, she starred in a play called The Blue Flame, which brought droves of people, but you see, they weren't coming because they loved her in it. You see, the thing was, 
They had always seen her in these silent movies. She was a great star that they had fallen in love with, but they had never heard her voice before. And you can just imagine how all of them had imagined what the voice of the vamp would be like. And now here it was, and how could it possibly measure up? Here it was, and it was, well, it was bad. <laughs> the acting was bad. Her voice was not what anyone expected. And people actually started going to her play ironically. <laughs> the great silent film actress, Theda Bara, here was making a laughing stock of herself. And that's what they actually were going to see. <laughs> I guess it's kind of fitting in a tragically poetic way. I mean, first there was a fool there was. And now there was only a fool. It was a sad end for her. Later, she went back to the movies, and in 1925, she made The Unchastened Woman. And you can just guess by that title, and there she was again, a vamp. And she only made one more movie after that. A parody, in fact, of her vamp role in a comedy called Madam Mystery in 1926, which was co-directed by Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy fame. And if she had to go out as a vamp, at least she could go out parodying that role. So I kind of like that best as the end of her career. A comedy that says all of this was just a bunch of BS. That was the end of the career of cinema's first sex symbol, Theta Bara. She was the vampire. Not the supernatural seducer, nor the folkloric monster, but the word in its now dead or nearly dead meaning a woman who exploits and ruins her love. She invaded the imagination with a kind of vampire that was much closer to home, exploiting male fears of, and perhaps desires for, such emasculation. She'd made a fortune. At the height of her career, in fact, she had earned $4,000 a week, which in today's money equals $56,000 per week. Finally, Theta Barra, or Theodosia Goodman, died in 1955, of stomach cancer, and her legacy survives in a mere handful of films, including a paltry 20 seconds from Cleopatra, and an evocative series of photographic stills, one of which you may have seen recently, and graces the cover of the recent hit album Cleopatra by the indie rock band The Lumineers. Now as I look back at the paralyzing image of Theta as Cleopatra that I described at the beginning of this episode, the one that mesmerized me by sheer force of personality. The thrill of that image is tinged with a bit of melancholy, and now I fully grasp my complicity in co-manufacturing the vampire of my fantasies here, as well as the vampirism that, in its own way, bled Theodosia dry. I mean, the industry consumed her. Audiences consumed her. Theda Bara consumed her long before the Fox Vault Fire destroyed the vast majority of her work, something had already been lost in Theodosia. And isn't that, after all, the ending that we all want from a great vampire story? The loss of innocence, the embrace of power, and the trembling fear of seduction, the exhilaration of which betrays our own desire to be seduced. Happy Halloween, everybody. I'm B.T. Newberg. And this is Dead Ideas. By the way, everyone, I'd like to extend a special thank you to Kevin McLeod for the amazing silent movie music used under a Creative Commons license in this episode. We'll be back next time with a new Dead Idea. This time we'll be delving into the history of science with 
the canals of Mars. The idea that the surface of Mars is crisscrossed with lines so long and straight they can only be constructions of an advanced extraterrestrial civilization. That's what we'll be talking about next time. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, remember to support this show at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. $5 a month gets you a portrait hand-drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a mesmerizing Theta Bara Cleopatra wearing nothing more than a pair of writhing serpents about your chest. Or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. See you next time, folks. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Happy Halloween.